Hello and welcome to Comic Book Workshop. It's a podcast about the craft of making comics. I'm Jason Hammonds, and I'm not an expert. I'm just trying to learn all I can from those who do it best. On this episode, I chat with Steve Fox. You'll know his work from books like Cheater Code, uh, The Department of Truth, Razorblades Magazine, and the upcoming Spider-Ham graphic novel, Great Power, No Responsibility. Steve and I talk about all sorts of things like covering comics for Pace.com, editing and managing various creator-owned comics projects, and the benefits and challenges of uh, writing in genres that are seemingly diametrically opposed. We'll get into all of that in just a bit. I'm super excited for you to listen to uh, this interview. I had a great time with it. Uh, But first, let's catch up a bit. Um, I've been watching uh, the new Invincible show on Amazon uh, recently, and I've I've found it really, really interesting. I think it's a very well-made show, um, particularly well-written. And... Something I found really interesting watching it is that it is a it is an adaptation that is very close to its source material. Um, there's a lot of similarities, and, and it's not deviating too far, uh, which I think makes the cases of deviation that much more interesting. Um, you know, I think that for anyone who who watches um, or who who has read Invincible before uh there's obviously that one big major twist right that that sort of everyone kind of refers to as the the moment that the the story got going and and really pulls you in and shows that it's you know different than um other superhero comics out there in a pretty significant way and i think one thing that's very interesting about the show as as opposed to the comic is the show puts that twist right at the end of its first episode in the comic. It takes, you know, like a volume and a half, like eight issues or so, um, something like that before that big twist happens, that big reveal happens. Um, and I think it's kind of, it's one of those cases of, um, I think as writers, people, particularly new writers, um, people tend to try and, hide as much as possible from the audience and try to get them with surprise, you know, try and like, uh, they, they kind of view surprise as the most, you know, important, the most, you know, the end all be all to good storytelling is, is surprise to a lot of people. And I'm certainly very guilty of that. In fact, you know, watching this, one of the reasons I'm bringing this up is that it, it really helped solidify something for, for a project that I'm writing right now. Um, in terms of like the value of, of informing your audience what's going on. Right. And, and, and it comes down to the um, opposition of suspense and surprise. Um, And so in, in the, the original story for invincible, those first eight issues are holding back this big secret, uh, basically hoping that when it, you know, reveals that big thing, that it's going to be an amazing, like incredible surprise. And that it's just going to like, blow your mind and that will make all of it worth it right but what it's sacrificing then is eight issues where the thing that's most interesting about the story is something that the readers know nothing about right and so many readers 
didn't really make it to that eighth issue, right? And a lot of people, it would take years before they would actually go back and read it. And it's only because Invincible became a very long running and successful comic because for, you know, whatever reason, uh, it was a comic that was allowed to keep going despite the fact that, you know, sales were not quite up to where they were. And originally Kirkman, you know, he said it himself, he wanted to keep that reveal for a while. He didn't want that reveal to happen for for so long. Uh, But ultimately it kind of showed out that like, oh, that, that reveal was necessary. The audience needed to know that that was what was going to happen. Um, and so what, what, what ends up sort of, I think proving out to this is, is like for the invincible pilot, right? Kirkman wrote that as well. So he's adapting his own material. It's not someone else coming in and reevaluating it. It's him reevaluating his own work. And I think the thing that, that this pilot really shows is that for, for the most effective storytelling, if you let the audience in on what is happening early, if they can see what you know what is going on and the things that are going to sort of surprise those other characters in the story, uh, then that can make for more effective and and gripping storytelling than just you know throwing a left turn on the audience because. Uh, uh, I mean, at this point, I feel like I, I'm just going to spoil it. Like if you haven't seen invincible skip ahead to, you know, I don't know, five minutes from now or something, um, or haven't read it either. Uh, you know, invincible's dad is a bad guy. Um, he, he's, you know, the ultimate bad guy and everyone thinks that he's, you know, Superman, but he's actually, you know, like the most destructive villain that there could possibly be. Uh, and it's cool and everything when that's revealed and you're like, oh my God, crazy. Like, you know, I, I never suspected that Omni-Man was, was going to be this, this huge bad guy. And that's cool and everything. And, and the story that happens after that is really, really awesome and really gripping. And I love that comic. Um, and what the show does is it says, we're going to show the audience immediately that that's who Omni-Man is. You know, right at the end of this first episode, we've, we've gotten them invested in the relationship between Mark and, and his dad and Nolan. Uh, but we're going to show the audience right now. There is something deeper behind this. There is a bomb under this table, you know, that is their relationship that eventually is going to explode. Like Mark thinks his dad is a superhero still. We know that his dad is a bad person who just killed, you know, the Guardians of the Globe, their Justice League, essentially. Um, We know that, but Mark doesn't. And so then as an audience, we are watching every good thing that happens between them, every development in their relationship. Every time Nolan pulls him in closer, we're watching that going, wait, but no, he's Mark. Mark." Like you're just wanting to tell Mark that he's that he's a bad guy, that there's something going on that he doesn't know about. And that makes, to me, you know, and, and feel free to disagree, but to me, it feels like it makes a much more compelling story because then you're on board. Then you know what's happening and you can feel that tension rather than just kind of waiting for something, you know, waiting for another surprise, waiting for something to pop up. You know, it's it's like the, the difference between, um, you know, jump scare horror versus, you know, like ideological, you know, like horror that, that is actually playing on your 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 existential fears more than your immediate fear of like death or whatever right um you know and so i i think it's just it's it's something very interesting and it, it ties back into the the hitchcock thing right of of you know if if two men are sitting at a table and suddenly a bomb goes off under the table that's great and all it's surprising and it accomplishes something you know very temporary very fleeting but if you show that bomb underneath the table and then watch the two guys playing chess 
instantly that is much more interesting, right? Because then you just, you know that there's this bomb, you know that at some point it's going to go off and all you can do is just see these two men who are completely unaware of it go about their chess game uh, uh, thinking that everything is totally fine, right? Like it's that kind of thing. And so I, I'm, it's just something I've been thinking about a lot lately and it's, it's actually been very helpful for me to see the dichotomy between the approach to those early issues of Invincible and the approach to these early episodes of Invincible. Um, so I, you know, I recommend that. I think, I think it's a great case study and a, and a rare case study in sort of one person re-examining their work and, and trying to improve upon it. Um, you know, sort of, what is it? Almost 20 years later. Um, so, you know, take that for what you will. And, and if you feel kind of the opposite, if you think that, you know, surprise is, is better than suspense, then, hey, that's uh, go for it. And I'm sure that there's, you know, a million cases that, that you know, sort of prove that point. I mean, I think J.J. Abrams, for instance, is someone who uh, is very um, adept at surprise uh, for better or worse. And I think that, you know, some of his best projects have really amazing surprises and, and, you know, even his projects that I don't necessarily love also have some amazing surprises, but it does also end up with things like, you know, Star Trek into darkness, where you have the reveal that Benedict Cumberbatch is playing Khan and we all kind of knew it, but the story was really relying on us not knowing it. Right. And so if you try so hard to hide the football, then if someone sees the football before you wanted to show it to them, you kind of, you know, you, you got nothing left. Right. But if you show them immediately that the football is there, but that, that, that someone is hiding that football from someone else. Right. Like if, 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 you're able to sort of create that surprise for other characters or create just the suspense for the audience because they understand exactly what's going on. You know, they understand every player at the table, like if you're watching a poker scene, right. And you know what every player at the table has uh, in terms of their hand and you see someone going all in, despite the fact that, you know, the person sitting across from them has a better hand. That's an interesting scene, right. You know, rather than, not seeing anyone's hand and just seeing someone go all in and then they turn it right. And of course there's specific cases for everything. You know, there's, there's ways that all of those things can be used, but um, I don't know for me, I've, I've just been thinking a lot about that, about building suspense and not being so, so precious about what the surprise or what the twist is of, of your story. Um, you know, I think that for me personally, I think that I'm really learning uh, that, I kind of, I value my audience's understanding of what I'm doing much more than I value the ability to try and outsmart or surprise them. You know, I, I kind of, I, I'm trying to be someone who assumes that my audience is going to be smarter for me or smarter than me rather, you know, and, and therefore don't try and hide stuff from them. I just try to like show them right away and hope that I can get them invested rather than sitting there going, Ooh, you have no idea what I'm going to do. You know, like, um, I, I, I personally am just, am, am kind of on that journey right now. Um, anyway, that's, that's what I'm thinking about lately. So, uh, uh, hope that, you know, helps you think about something. And, and of course, as always, uh, you know, shoot, shoot those Twitter messages or, or whatever. And, and just let me know if you have opposing thoughts or if you think there, there are, there are things that prove the point in the other direction, right? That, uh, sometimes giving up your surprise isn't necessarily a helpful thing to do. 
Um, anyway, but uh, uh, before we get on into the interview with Steve Fox, I wanted to introduce you all to Garm. And longtime listeners, of course, know Garm by now, but uh, they are the graphic artist uh, resource management company. Um, these people do amazing work with uh, Photoshop and Procreate plugins to help digital artists take their work to the next level. Um, this is, you know, it's it's something that's great for me. I love adding texture. I love adding uh, interesting brushes and interesting, um, you know, sort of just like that that extra, you know, dynam dynamicism. I know there's a better word for that. I know that that's not what the word is that I'm trying to say, but I'm just going to say that for now because it's late at night and I don't care. Um, you know, but just that that extra depth uh, to your work because to me personally, you know, doing digital art sometimes can feel very cold. Um, it can feel, you know, just a little almost like you know the 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 hand of the artist is kind of lost in the work sometimes and i like using tools like what garm provides to sort of bring back a little bit of that tactile nature um to art to to kind of you know just see the hand at work a little bit more um you know so that it's not so sanitized uh and clean right um which is also why I'm trying to, you know, control Z less and sort of live with whatever mistakes I make. But that's another thing. Um, but if you go to uh, uh, garmcompany.com slash TMBC, you can check out all of the different tools they have, like my personal favorite, the Rawhide Kit, which will give you all sorts of different, um, you know, kind of like halftone and lithotone effects, um, you know, to give kind of that vintage aged look to, to your work. Um, and if you go to that URL, again, garmcompany.com slash TMBC, you'll get 20% off anything you order there. So, uh, you know, it helps you out. It helps me out. Everyone wins. Uh, so again, that's garmcompany.com slash TMBC. Go check Garm out and uh, take your work to the next level. Um, and just a reminder real quick to follow the show at TMBC Workshop. You can follow me at Jason Halftones and you can follow Steve at Steve underscore Fox. And without further ado, let's get right on in to that interview with Mr. Steve Fox. I'm here with uh, the writer of The Cheater Code, the co-creator of Razor Blades, the editor of uh, the Department of Truth, and uh, many other things, including The Night Train and Dead Means Dead. Uh, it's Steve Fox. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Thank you for being on. Uh, now, you've got a lot of different aspects to your career, so it was really fun uh, kind of diving through and, and sort of, you know, picking out the things to talk about, and I'm sure we won't be able to, to cover everything of interest, but uh, one thing I'm wondering, I guess, you know, like you, you edited a Paste magazine uh, and seemingly ran the entire ship there while it existed. <laughs> uh what was that job like? What tell me about the complications of uh, running a comics editorial site pretty much single handedly? Well, uh, my my whole journey with Paste was pretty interesting because I started freelance. Work. So I used to work full time at Random House. I was a children's editor for five years at Random House. Got okay, interesting. Yes, uh, and I do a lot of work in children's still. So I, I, I yeah. my career is a very fun scatter shot of like <laughs> genre and tone and age appropriateness. Uh -huh. uh, and instead of choosing one lane, I've just chosen them all. Sure, uh, sure. And it, it's funny because I, I was with Paste for several years, and I almost forget that that even happened just because I, I still <laughs> spin so many weird plates. Uh, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I started contributing freelance to Paste as a writer when I was still at Random House because one of my coworkers there had been an intern there. And when they first reached out 
uh, to folks about building a, a comic section at Paste. They had mm-hmm. hit up him. He recommended me. The first thing I did was like an hour and a half interview with Kieran Gillen about the Wicked and the Divine, which like, <laughs> I go back now, I'm like, why did he even entertain oh me God. for that long? As I just like, did not know how to edit myself down. So it's like, question, 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 question. <laughs> um, but I, I hit it off well with the editor of the site at the time, Sean Edgar. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And Sean's still a good friend, and he's go he's gone on to work for um, Image Comics, and now does some work with Humanoids, and you know he, he's mm-hmm. all over the place too. Um, but Sean and I just hit it off well, so I continued to contribute more and more to Paste, and eventually in 2017, um, I was planning to leave my full time job at Random House to commit to freelancing and comics, mm-hmm. and around the same time, Sean was stepping away from paste because he had gotten a full-time offer at image. Mm-hmm. So I ended up taking over the site right around the same time, uh, which, you know, spoiler alert, it's not been the best 10 years for digital journalism in general. Yep. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, it's a difficult, difficult landscape. And comics journalism in particular has not had the easiest go of things. Yeah. So when I took over at paste, it coincided with them slashing budgets you know, keeping us. Other sections got sure. folded completely, but slashing budgets. So when you say, like, you know, I pretty much did it single-handedly, it's not <laughs> cocky to say that that is mostly true <laughs> because I was allowed to have three freelancers. One of the ones I chose right. uh, was so busy that he could barely contribute. Great pieces when he could, but sure. so I was doing, like, 80% of what went up on that site for almost a year before they ended up cutting our section, too. Yeah. But you know, when that got cut, it was a depressing five minutes. And then it was like, you know what, this is pushing the baby bird out of the nest. Like I need to do other stuff and not have half my day be full of, of posting about other people's comics. <laughs> sure. No, that, that makes total sense. Was there anything in that process of covering all these things, interviewing these people, uh, uh, you know, dissecting the forum, I feel like, uh, was there anything about that that you think was was an education in how you approach creating comics? Oh, for sure. Uh, it, you know, a lot of it was less on like the technical education side than it was on a very natural opportunity to network, but also to make friends and sure. learn more about uh, colleagues. And one of the things I appreciated most at Paste was one of the reasons we went under, which is that we didn't do a lot of clickbait. Um, yeah. Know, you didn't see a lot of like 10 hottest She-Hulk moments or anything like that from us. Um, so I mostly, well, I interviewed creators that I found interesting. Right. And a lot of that was like up and coming talent. Yeah. So it was nice to kind of get the perspective of folks who were making their first big mark in the industry or on their way mm-hmm. toward doing that. Um, because one of the, the most common pieces of advice you hear people say in comics is that when you're starting out, it's not so much about trying to like, jump on the coattails of very established creators. It's about finding your peers and supporting each other as you all come up together. Right. Uh, And I've always found that to be true and and paste enabled me to meet a lot more folks that way. And to get to interview, like, you know, I did a long, I did two long phone chats with Jeff Darrow, who's like, you know, a a hero of mine and Mm -hmm. other folks who I never would have had the chance to talk to and pick their brain in depth. I, I got to do, for a, a modest rate at this magazine. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty sick. And, and honestly, like the, you know, when it was around, you know, when it, when it was active, uh, Paste was definitely 
up there for my favorite site to to visit to read about comics because exactly you know sort of the things you're talking about right like the lack of clickbait the sort of actual insight into the craft and and things like that which you know it's like there was for a long time it felt like comics alliance was the only place that you could get that and then of course you know comics alliance went under and and you know pace sort of had the same fate which uh, i guess tells us something about how people consume media but uh, <laughs> So I guess in some ways this podcast is doomed because yeah. I'm not doing a uh, uh, clickbait. <laughs> um, yeah, we don't get eulogized the way Comic Alliance does, and I get that. But I do think like creators really liked us and PR people really liked us because we were willing to do a little more in-depth features. And mm-hmm. we kind of just, both with Sean and when I was doing it, we did what interested us because we were never going to do those sexy She-Hulk lists. Yeah. Um, but then on the back end, like, you know, I could see what performed well. And one of the first things I ever did there was this, like, top 10 Junji Ito panels. You know, it took me five minutes. And that was right. highest trafficker in there for, like, three years. So that's what yeah, folks someone, <laughs> at some point, At some point, someone's going to figure out, like, the right balance of, like, peppering in the clickbait like stuff that just like <laughs> has to pay the bills, but then still be able to do the, the features that, you know, drive the interest. Um, yeah, yeah that's, it, was, it wasn't me. <laughs> I, honestly, I, I do not think it could be me. And I, I don't know of anyone who really has the brain to be able to sit firmly in both of those worlds. I feel like it would take uh, a collaboration of people with many varied interests in order to accomplish it. But then what's the payroll like for that? Anyway. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So I want to rewind the clock uh, and and sort of let's 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 you know get a picture for for who Steve Fox was and where he grew up and how he became the person he is now. Uh, so tell me where where'd you grow up? Where are you from? I grew up outside of Ann Arbor, uh, and then I went to NYU for undergrad, mm-hmm. which is really my my only choice. And um, I stayed in New York ever since. I've been in New York over a decade now. And oh, shit. My, I mean, as far as comic origins go, they're fairly typical of of readers my age because I grew up with X Men the animated series, right. Spider Man the animated series, Batman the animated series. <laughs> yeah. You know, I had like the perfect Saturday morning education into all of these characters and worlds, um, <clears throat> and then I started reading comics themselves heavily in the late nineties. And was just perfectly positioned for um, New X-Men with Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely. That's right, kind right. of like the the turning point in my life, which again, you know, is not the most original thing to say. It's a, a wildly hey. popular run. But I mean, you um, know, it, it hit people. That's why it's popular. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sitting in front of a framed poster of the promo. Like, you know, that, right. that really was kind of the shifting point in my life. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why was because I immediately snapped up everything I could with Grant's name on it. So mm-hmm. when I was 11, 12, 13, I was reading everything contemporary, but I was also having this like back issue education in Vertigo. Mm-hmm. So older Vertigo stuff is like just warped my brain as a preteen. <laughs> yeah. And, and never left me. I mean, that's still like the high, you know, so many people in comics, I think they're chasing the high that they felt at a certain age. Yep. And for me, I do have this kind of anachronistic high of chasing these golden days of Vertigo, which I didn't even realize at the time were already faded. Like these books right, were, right. were all long done. Um, but that was kind of the, the inflection point for me. And then I, I went to NYU. NYU has a program where you create your own major. 
And I, I did literally study comic books. Like that was my undergraduate major. Uh-huh. Uh, I interned at Marvel for a year, which wow. really helped inform sort of my idea behind the scenes and to get a different view of that experience. And then I worked in publishing as soon as I graduated. So it's kind of a, a straight shot. I don't have the most <laughs> like interestingly varied. I didn't have sure. some bizarre career before this or anything like that. I've, I've been a writer and editor. <laughs> so I could write and edit. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm interested, actually, you know, you talk about, yeah, like they, they let you uh, create your own major. Uh, what kind of, you know, if you're if you're majoring in, you know, specifically in something to do with comics, what kind of classes are you even taking, right? Because I can't imagine they have a, a ton of coursework that's that's readily available to fit that major. I think they have more now, but I graduated in 2012, so less than. Right. But the nice thing about Gallatin, and like I goof on NYU all the time now, I had a good experience, <laughs> but some, sure. some Gallatin students, like the joke was always that you could major in evil or major in underwater <laughs> basket weaving. But, you know, you can't do that much nonsense sure. but you take courses in Gallatin which are these very flexible seminars and then you take courses in other parts of NYU so I took a lot of figure drawing courses I took oh, a lot cool. of creative writing courses you know it's like a it was kind of a, a skewed creative writing English education mm-hmm. um, and then I took some publishing courses in their like adult studies program um, and that's how I ended up getting an internship at Kodansha the manga publisher okay, yeah, yeah of course so it was just kind of about like how much of the publishing industry can I approximate in my uh, four years of undergrad? That makes sense. Yeah. Did, do you still draw? No. And even no, then not I, no, not at all. And even then I was like, there's no future for me in this, but if I'm going uh, to try to have a career asking other people to draw things that I make up, I at least need to a little bit understand what I'm asking <laughs> people to do. Um, so I took quite a few art courses just to kind of expand my own perspective on it. But sure, sure. not uh, even on day one did I think I will draw a comic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, at least I think that that's something that that at least in this medium tends to serve writers quite well is to have some understanding of drawing. You know, there's there's obviously like the extremes of that where you hear Grant Morrison like pencils out or like roughs out his pages for every comic he writes. Uh, or there's even, you know, just the, the low end of that where it's like, oh, yeah, like these these people know how to draw and don't don't really do it often or you know whatever but like it does give some semblance of of i think better understanding for what you're asking a collaborator to do oh yeah i don't think it's any mistake that alan moore grant morrison brian michael bendis they have all and can all draw comic books they just hit points in their career where they're like i don't want to do this (laughs) (laughs) it's Uh, a lot of work yeah it's a lot of work and uh (laughs) But I just knew I needed to see at least a little bit of that side. And I still often I will sketch out, like if I'm working on a page, I will mm. sketch out, you know, the ugliest possible rough just to kind of see how things are going to fall on the pages. Right. Um, but you're, you're never going to see a Steve Fox written and drawn <laughs> comic. But it's, I'll write, I'll edit, I will not draw. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know. It's good to have your boundaries. <laughs> Um, well, so tell me about some of your, you know, horror seems to, to be a big, you know, influence for you. I mean, your, your short stories, as well as obviously razor blades and, and editing the department of truth. Uh, what are your horror touchstones? Where does, where does horror start to enter into your, your life? Yeah. I mean, I'm so glad that folks are now associating me with horror because a lot of my mm-hmm. earlier opportunities were children's books and I love, yeah. I love kids books. I write a ton of kids books still. I've done over 50 licensed kids books. Like that is kind wow. of my like shadow day job 
Mm-hmm. Um, Including the upcoming uh, Spider-Ham graphic novel. Yeah, I'm so, I mean, Look. that like bridges my worlds, but like, I mean, I do right. like Mario activity books, you know, right, and yeah, that yeah. stuff's all very fun for me. But um, yeah, horror has been one of my oldest loves from a childhood where I was petrified by all of it. Like when mm-hmm. I was a kid, I could not watch any of those things. My older cousin had a, a Freddy Krueger doll that just seeing the doll would like send me running oh into the God. other room. Wow. Uh, and now I have one of those myself. <laughs> it still has like the working voice box. Um, but at a certain point, I think I, I remember I went to see The Ring. Uh-huh. No, correction. I went to see The Grudge. Okay. And I watched it through my fingers. I was terrified. It's not even yeah. a good movie. It doesn't hold up. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I feel you. But that was, whatever age that was, was when I was like, you know what? I have to to do this like i've been curious in a scared way my whole life i have to force myself into this and pretty much after i broke the seal with the grudge i was all in and then i spent (laughs) high school just plowing through all the classics i could Mm -hmm. um a really early touch point for me and and one of the people that kind of changed the tide was clive barker Okay. Yeah. Um, because I had been fascinated, like like any kids kid of the '90s, you go you grow up seeing the VHS covers in Blockbuster, mm-hmm. and Hellraiser was always one of the most fascinating ones to me because he wasn't a guy in a mask. He was covered in pins. There was a weird box. It had this like you know vaguely religious undertone, <laughs> right. uh, which you know is not vague at all as an adult seeing it. But as a kid, uh-huh. I was like, something is different here, <laughs> and. I went to San Diego Comic-Con 2004 mm-hmm. and he was there promoting some like weird stuffed animal line he did briefly. Um, but I got a copy of Books of Blood and I had him sign it. And then Books of Blood was like the first real adult horror I read. Uh-huh. And that is, you know, again, talk about things like a 13 year old probably shouldn't be <laughs> devouring. Um, but that, that just set me on the path prose wise. Right. So you know, the grudge and, and Clive Barker <laughs> were the starting <laughs> point. So I still love one and I don't care about the other. <laughs> That's so funny. I, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's interesting. Like where those origin points are. Um, I'm wondering for you, what, what kind of, what makes effective horror in your mind, right? Like it, it, it seems like you've, you know, sort of, uh, had this, you know, outside in approach to horror where you, you sort of came into it, you know, late and then, you know, kind of like really dove all in. And so I'm wondering if you feel like there's sort of a a root or a center that you try to look for anytime you're writing horror. I try to look for the unexplained, I guess. I mean, my my favorite horror, like, I don't need to know where the Cenobites come from. I don't need to know how the Cenobites technically work. I don't uh-huh. need to know why Michael Myers keeps coming. I don't need to know there's a, <laughs> a, a Celtic cult. <laughs> like, you know, right. forget uh, Halloween 6 or whatever. Um, or like It Follows. It Follows is one of my favorite more recent yeah. ones. Oh my God, yeah. Like, I, I don't want to know what it is. I don't want to know how it works. All I need to know is that it's following. It's all there in the title. <laughs> and I think in, yeah. in comics in particular, especially ongoing comics, because it's, it's hard to tell a very long horror story. There's a reason yeah. a lot of horror movies hover around 90 minutes. Like Tight 90. You get in, you get out. And in a lot of the long-running horror stories, you just end up with the creators explaining so much or adding so much to the lore that it becomes yeah. supernatural action or it becomes sci-fi right. action. And you lose 
that unexplained. You lose that uncanny feeling. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of my own horror work, I am trying to chase how much can I disturb or frighten you without having to get into any of that. Like I don't uh, want to yeah. get lost in the the specifics. I want to make you feel uncomfortable, unsettled, you know, off kilter and give you just as much information as you need to suspend your disbelief. That's so interesting. I'm like, cause it's, it's taken me through like a bunch of, of different paths mentally. I, um, one thing, one of my writing mentors that I'm actually, uh, taking class with right now is Cammie Delavine who wrote on homecoming, um, and, and a few other things, but that's sort of her most horror adjacent project. And she talks about how she came from the world of, of features, you know, she, she wrote features initially and she talks about how features tend to be primarily character driven and series tend to be primarily world driven, right? They both have mixes of those things. And then that's interesting applying that to horror because exactly what you're saying, where like the longer you go on, the more the story is kind of about the world, right? It's about, you know, the city it's set in or the town or like the mechanism of all these of all these things, you know, The Walking Dead starts to become, even though it is character driven, it starts to become about, you know, the world of the apocalypse. Uh, and so, yeah, in, in horror, if you're trying to tell, you know, an effective horror story rather than a story with horror trappings and you start to, you know, expand and continue and continue, then it's like at a certain point you're kind of showing and explaining the monster too much, um, which I think is why, you know, that's so funny because then tying it back into to razor blades, it's like, oh yeah, like an anthology magazine of of short contained horror stories, uh, you know, and 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 I've found so much of that work so effective, which is is rare in comics these days. I, I feel like uh, where I'm reading just enough, and and I mean it's it's not a razor blade story, but I'll use Night Train as an example. That story to me is so chilling and it like legitimately was more impactful than any like long form horror graphic novel I've read in a while because you're going, wait, what? And like you, you understand what things represent, but you're like this, what is this train? Like how, how much of this was real? How much of the, right? Like what, what of this is here and what's going on in this character's head? And it's so unsettling the things that are actually happening. Like, yeah, I, I, it's just really interesting tying all that together because I've never heard it put so succinct, succinctly before. So I'm now I'm just sort of exploring that in my mind. <laughs> yeah, and you know it's so subjective because that's what works the most for me. Like the more explanation I get, the less interested I become because I don't want to know. I don't want to see how the magic trick works. Like right. just give me the magic trick. Right. And, uh, it's interesting. So I you know I don't like to dissect Pierre's work so I'll sure, I'll totally. use someone who's quite safe. The last two nights I've watched I watched Terminator and Terminator 2. Okay, yeah. And uh Terminator 2 I know I've seen several times but I was much younger. Mm-hmm. Terminator the first one I can't swear I ever saw it or if I just like thought I did through cultural right. osmosis. Yep. yep. <laughs> Honestly, I'm the same way currently. <laughs> yeah, and it's a fantastic movie. In a lot of ways even though I acknowledge that T2 is this like you know, untouchable classic, uh-huh. I prefer the directness of the first Terminator. Because the first Terminator is a horror movie. It's very much a slasher movie. It's very right. it's very similar to It Follows or Halloween, where, you know, Arnie just does not stop coming for Linda, Linda Hamilton. Right. And James Cameron and uh, his co-writer, whose name escapes me, do such an amazing job of giving you the exact amount of exposition you need. 
because it's a crazy concept. I mean, the, both yeah. of the movies rely on a time loop that don't make sense, right. I, and <laughs> and are about a robotic skeleton from the future coming to the past. Mm. And you, pretty could, sick. you could <laughs> what? They're pretty sick. Yeah, <laughs> but you could so easily see it going off the rails. And the first yeah. Terminator is such a master class in like I will give you the exact amount of information you need to not question what you are seeing because what right. you are seeing is so awesome. Right. And the second one, you know, still mostly stays on those rails, but is a little more self-indulgent. It was at yeah. the time the most expensive movie ever made. And it gives you enough more where you're like asking a few more questions, but it still mostly keeps it contained. And then after right. that, you know, the franchise just goes off the rails because suddenly yeah. you're seeing parts of the world you never were meant to see. You're asking questions that you were never really meant to ask. So that franchise from a horror sci-fi to like a sci-fi with slight horror moments to just a complete failure <laughs> is like, <laughs> is actually a really interesting class in how much information you need in a genre story to right. get, get your consumer, um, your reader, your, your viewer, your listener in, but not asking the wrong questions. That's so, that's so interesting. I, I, I'm young enough that Terminator Salvation was my first Terminator movie. <laughs> uh, you know, at the time it was like Christian Bale, he's Batman. Yeah. So of course I'm going to go watch this. He's kicking robots asses. And like, I loved that movie when I saw it and I have never wanted to revisit it. Yeah, you I probably don't shouldn't. want it to be worse. <laughs> um, but yeah, like it's, thinking of, of Terminator 2, and it, it is such an interesting example of like, oh yeah, the longer it goes, the less sense it makes and like the less it actually holds up. Um, yeah. And it becomes a different genre. You know what yes. I mean? Like it's, because you can't sustain horror for that that long in that with that type of conceit, at least. Yeah, and the, um, the, my other favorite example, uh, speaking with James Cameron, is Alien mm-hmm. to Aliens. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Alien is my favorite movie of all time. My, you yeah. can't see it, but the the poster. I have a whole wall of <laughs> Alien posters. I have like fifteen sure. Alien posters, uh, and I like Aliens very much. A lot of people uh, think Aliens is the clear winner of the two, but it's it's an entirely different genre. Totally. It's a sci-fi movie. It's a sci-fi Whereas action movie where you, alien is horror. you see people mowing down xenomorphs by the dozen. Yeah. And that completely punctures their ability to scare you because yeah. they've now become cannon fodder. As long as you have a machine gun, you have a decent yeah. chance versus one thing taking down an entire cruiser. Um, so that to me is like, the and, you know, I had such complicated feelings about James Cameron for years, <laughs> but... It, it was genius because you can't really replicate the horror. David Fincher sure. tries to do it in Alien 3, yeah. you know, to mixed results. I'm a fan of the movie, but a lot sure. it was a bomb at the time. So yeah. it's, uh, it is hard to sustain horror, and that's why I love getting to work on an anthology and do these shorter stories because we can have creators get in at the right moment, get out at the right moment, and give us like yeah. the scariest, most disturbing thing they want to explore for four or eight pages. Totally. No, and it's 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 very effective, truly. And if anyone listening has not read Razor Blades, uh, definitely please check it out because there's some. Not only is it amazing work, but it's like work from. And this is another thing I appreciate about it is that it's a nice uh, mix of like creators who are are fairly established and well known, and also creators who are quite new. You know, like uh, uh, people who I've known for a little bit who like just had their first published work recently or what, you know, like, and so it's, it's awesome to see that kind of like, uh, uh, you know, mix of, of creators. And so anyone listening should check it out. Yeah. And um, it's, it's available digitally for whatever price you want to pay at readrazorblades.com. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's truly no barrier to entry. If you want to 
pay zero dollars, you can pay zero dollars and check out now uh, like 160 pages of horror. Amazing. I did you like before because I want to talk more about razor blades <laughs> right now. But but did you ever hear the the myth and or tale of how James Cameron pitched Aliens? Yeah, that he walks in and just writes <laughs> S on the board. Yeah. I would love love for that to be true. (laughs) He writes alien on the board, looks at everyone, then writes an S, (laughs) looks at everyone, then puts a line through the S and then drops his marker. I would, I really want that to be true. And I'm sure that's more complicated than that, but that's the funniest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Yeah. That's Um, the best possible version of how that could have happened. Uh, now, speaking of the the sort of the two projects that you have going concurrently with with James Tynan, uh, Department of Truth and Razor Blades, which one of these projects comes up first? Which one, you know, chronologically starts happening first? Uh, Department of Truth. So okay. Department of Truth, we started where James, Martin, Aditya and Dylan were all mm-hmm. uh, I was the last one to join the team and I joined mid 2019. Okay. So we had about a <clears throat> less than a year development time before the series got announced. Right, right. And like, what was your, like, in terms of coming into the project, what was the thing? uh, Because I think the the job of editor on a creator owned book is it varies a lot from book to book, right? Like some creators need a different type of, of role in their editor. And so as it was sort of defined to you, or as you came to see it, when you came out of the project, what what does your role sort of become on that book? My role is twofold on Department of Truth. I am working to keep everything on track production-wise to mm-hmm. you know juggle schedules and our variant cover artists work with image as the main liaison, all of that. But mm-hmm. I also work with James to help guide the direction of the series. It's mm-hmm. it's funny to talk about because obviously James Tynan is doing quite well. <laughs> you know, he, sure, sure. he doesn't need someone to hold his hand. And <laughs> When I talk about, uh, you know, people ask about the balance between being a writer and an editor. Right. And I think to successfully be both, on the editorial side, my job is not to write, to tell him how to write Steve Fox's Department of Truth. He doesn't doesn't need that. James Tynan's Department of Truth is is fine enough. My (laughs) job is to bring out the best and clearest version of James Tynan's Department of Truth. Right. Um, So I'm working with him as a sounding board as a second reader, as someone to say, um, you know, for instance, we had our guest issue with Elsa last month, issue six, a standalone. Yeah. She's amazing. A lot of information in that issue because it deals with a more obscure conspiracy theory, which is that the Catholic church basically invented 500 years on the calendar. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's called the phantom time hypothesis. And it's very interesting but it's not one that people know as easily as, you know, flat earth. Sure. Sure. So on that part of that was working with James to get across the information that needed to get across in a way that's still going to be interesting and dynamic and not a history lesson. Sure. Right. And when you're dealing with something like department of truth, where you're really enmeshed in the lore and in the real life parallels and in the conspiracies. Yeah. Talk about a series that's about the world, right? Like- yeah. <laughs> You need someone who can say, okay, it all makes sense in your head, but something didn't make it to the page where it's going to make sense to the reader. And this is how we work to do that. Um, And also keeping keeping track of terms we use. Like it's kind of an all-service editorial relationship. I've done other books where the job is really production editor. Like you're kind of just making sure A gets to B. Um, But Department of Truth is a lot of fun to work on because I get to 
have my hands on all all aspects of that process. Right. Now, and it's interesting, the, the, the elements of it you're talking about, sort of like the conspiracies and balancing the amount of information to give to the reader and, and that kind of thing. And I'm wondering, do you find that you, do you prefer to sort of do, you know, as much of the research as James is doing on all these topics to make sure you understand them holistically? Or do you try to come into it cold so that you can, you know, sort of like view and critique the same way any reader would? It's been a mix. So like, for instance, Phantom Time, I didn't really do any reading on that because I was like, this is a strange concept. Yeah. And I kind of just want to know if I come to this fresh with Department of Truth issue number six, am I going to be able to follow any of this? Yeah, yeah. Other things that we have coming up, I've done, you know, almost as much of a deep dive as James or Martin mm-hmm. or anyone else on the team so that I do have that that experience to help say like, oh, you know, that's really interesting. But what if we approach it from this angle or like what if sure. we showed this aspect of it? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it's been solicited that we're coming up on uh, Bigfoot and some cryptid related stuff, which I'm very uh-huh. excited about. And I've been doing research for that for 31 years. So <laughs> I'm, I'm ready for that arc. <laughs> That's so funny. I and, and one thing I think, too, which like I, I totally I don't know at what point it was announced, but it kind of hit me by surprise. Like once I saw uh, Elsa posting process pages, but like, you know, it's pretty rare for a creator owned book to bring in guest artists. Right. And obviously, to me, from the outside looking in, I can understand exactly why, because it seems as though Martin has like very, very involved art that takes <laughs> a, probably a while to produce. And so there's at a certain point, I feel like there's a logistical challenge there. Um, but but talk about involving those guest artists in a project like this. I mean, how how complicated does it get for you? How far in advance do you know sort of who you're bringing in and, and what's going on there? We knew before the first issue came out that we were going to do guest issues between arcs uh-huh. um, because, you know, for the reason you say, Martin has a very time-intensive process. Sure. So we have to plan ahead based on Martin's schedule. And mm-hmm. our release actually got moved up, um, you know, because with the pandemic and everything last year, yeah. things got moved around. But we had an opportunity to launch in the fifth week of September and kind of get, like, all of Image's attention for a week. Right, yeah. Um, such a light week normally and then yes. in the pandemic even more so like yeah so we took it we seized that opportunity but it suddenly meant everything was like two months faster than we had originally planned for right. um and there was actually a version where we were going to have four guest issues between the arc but after talking about oh. it we're like you know what that's a long time to put the main story on hold let's cut it down to two and we right. have two very exciting artists lined up for down the line uh uh-huh. It was a, it's a very fun process because James had this wish list of artists and we talked about like who would be cool for this, who would be cool for that. And uh, our four first choices were all on board. Amazing. And then to, to match these kind of side stories that James has to tell about the Department of Truth to the, yeah. the art styles that's going to make the most sense for them. Right. Um, and you know, we kind of patterned it after The Wicked End of the Divine where uh-huh. uh, they didn't do numbered guest issues, but they did one-shots in between arcs, if you remember that. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we just chose to do ours as regular numbered issues to make it easier for retailers and readers. <clears throat> oh, right. um, the, the cough makes it sound like I'm being shady towards uh, <laughs> Kieran and Kieran. We No, no, no. So, so it, it, it's just really like a best of all worlds. To have the ability to... Right see the Department of Truth's world interpreted through these other art styles, tell stories yeah. that don't necessarily fit in the modern day with Cole and Ruby and the rest of the main cast. 
right. and also give Martin time to do his best work. Sure, sure. That makes total sense. Yeah, and I, I do appreciate, you know, I mean, like, I the combination of Martin's art and then using these guest issues, like, because I think that the trap that some people fall into is that they will try and bring in guest artists who approximate the style of right. their main artist or who have like a, you know, a similar style. And then to me, at least the thing that happens is you start to become distracted by the differences because things are so similar that then the things that aren't the same start to become like hindrances to your experience. Even if it's an amazing artist, right? You start to be like, Oh, what's happening? You know? <laughs> like, like an example that I use and, and this legitimately is no shape to anyone, but like uh, when Annie Wu was drawing black Pan- or um, black, Panther, black canary, oh, uh, Hawk, when she was oh, doing okay. black canary uh, there, there were some guest issues where Sandy Jarrell was brought in and like, I love Sandy Jarrell as an artist. I, I think he's absolutely incredible, but it was my first experience with him. And when you're used to Annie Wu's art, all you can see is what's not Annie Wu. Right. And so I was like, what is it? Ah, this. Ah. <laughs> uh, but then I would, you know, come to read Sandy Jarrell's work and other stuff later and be like, oh my God, this guy's amazing. He's incredible. Like, <laughs> you know, uh, and so, I, but what I think is awesome in Department of Truth is that like you're going from Martin Simmons, you know, who was very involved, this sort of Sienkiewicz, like, you know, inspired, uh, or like, you know, adjacent, like painterly, you know, very, very like layered and, and multimedia kind of art to Elsa, who's got, you know, these very like stripped down lines, she's heavy blacks and inks, like, you know, really, really interesting, like flat compositions. Uh, and same with like Tyler Boss, who yeah. obviously has, you know, he's done his own stylistic explorations as well, which I'm loving. Um, but like I, I love the contrast there that because it creates it, it is so far apart that like you're not even thinking about that you know you're not even trying to compare them you're just experiencing it. Um, so so props to you guys for for uh, <laughs> finding good creators. Um, but so uh, uh, in talking about razor blades right, which you are the co-creator and editor of, and also you know uh, in seemingly in every issue are, are writing yes. a story. Oh, yeah. I've, I uh, carved out a space for myself, <laughs> which is great. Uh, <laughs> Tell me, so in in the first um, letter, in, in the letter in the first issue, James talks about you guys had a phone conversation and you sort of started talking about it. Um, walk me through what the next steps are after you guys have that initial call about the idea. Well, it started as texting back and forth because he, in the beginning of the pandemic, uh, James started uh, ordering it on eBay, all these like obscure comic runs that he had always uh-huh. wanted to read. And one of them was Taboo, the horror anthology Steve Bissett did in the late 80s and early 90s. Yeah, which is where From Hell comes from. Yes, From Hell uh, was serialized there. That's kind of, a, you know, Charles Burns did work there. Um, so James, we were talking about Department of Truth. And James texted me a photo of his taboo haul. And I was cleaning my bookshelf at the time. And I pulled out some of my copies and was like, oh, yeah, these are great. I picked these up. I think I got mine at The Strand or something in Uh New York. Um, And we started talking back and forth where James was like, oh, I wish there was an anthology like this now. Like, it sucks that the Western market doesn't support anthologies that well. It'd be great to have a place where you could just do whatever you wanted with horror. And it wasn't so, like, market bound. And uh, it just very quickly escalated from like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to, I I think we're going to do this. (laughs) Uh, And it's held by, you know, James is very much like that in general. Like James is a big thinker. And Uh if you count the pages in Department of Truth, the the issues get bigger all the time. (laughs) Like, you know, it's more and cooler ideas on like a nonstop flow. And Uh we were uniquely positioned because he's doing so well with his books I'm picking up a lot of work in different places. And when we started the idea, 
a lot of our most talented friends and peers had had their work paused or canceled because of the pandemic. Right. So we had the notion, which turned out to be true, that we could get some people who might otherwise be too busy to do something for us for an anthology if we struck mm-hmm. right away. Right. Um, and then it was a lot of logistical conversations. <laughs> the first version of Razor Blades was going to be 48 pages and digital only. Got it. Uh, okay. Print only came about later. And also the finished first issue was 72 pages. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Print only came about later because James really wanted a physical artifact just to show, like, hey, we did this. Right, and he was right. like, let's just do a limited print run of 500. Who knows if we'll even sell them? And then they sold out in 45 minutes because, one, it's a lot of talented names. Yeah. And two, if you tell the comics internet there's only 500 of something, yep. the speculators come out in force. Yep. Uh, so we sold out, but we also figured out quickly, our whole thought was like, oh, it's no big deal. It sold out. You can get it digitally. Like, this yeah. is the point anyway. But we kept hearing from folks saying, I only like to read physically. I really want one on my bookshelf. I hate digital. I can't read on a screen, whatever. Yeah. Um, which was not a perspective I had. I went all digital six years ago, and I never looked sure, back. Sure. Yeah. So I was naive about how many folks still really want the physical object. Yeah. Um, and from there, we just had to figure out how to scale up. Because that first issue... James, his partner Sam, Vita Ayala, and I were all in our masks in James's apartment, stuffing the envelopes and putting the address <laughs> labels on ourselves. Yeah, uh, and we're like, we we can't do this again. <laughs> <laughs> so from there, we found a distribution partner and like figured out ways to make it all work for the whole first year run. But it, right. it's such an education because neither James nor I had ever self published. Yeah, we're, we're at very different points in our career. And we've both done a lot of different things, but that totally. was one realm that neither of us had ever touched on. Yeah, that's, it's such a, a huge, you know, and I talked to obviously like a lot of people that I have on the show, um, you know, the, the most recent example being Curtis Clow, who is someone that that does all of his own stuff. You know, he, he goes through Kickstarter for his, his comics and he packages all of them himself. And like his apartment is just filled with boxes of his comics constantly because he's just, you know, running through, you know, each issue and getting them shipped out. And it is such an immense undertaking to, to yeah. self-publish something and to like, you know, put it out all yourself. Um, so yeah, I can't imagine like how much work that was. Uh, I, I'm wondering what, you know, like, was that to you the biggest obstacle in getting this out into the world? Or was there something to you that you feel like was even more challenging than just the physical production of it? The physical production is far and away the most challenging because James mm-hmm. and I are very spoiled in knowing a lot of cool folks who are interested in doing it. And right. we've had like enormous luck in reaching out to strangers who we just respect or admire who are right. totally down for this. Like, I, you know, I saw someone online say like, oh, it's just all their friends. And it's, it's really not like, yeah, we, we know probably <laughs> half the collaborators, but sure. there are a ton of people we've never met in any capacity, emailed out of the blue. One of the creators in an upcoming issue, I had to email his website, like the form email on his website, <laughs> and he got back to me and was interested. So Amazing. we've gotten some very cool folks involved. Uh, so that mm-hmm. part, in a lot of ways, is a dream. I would say the biggest nightmare for me, um, because James and I divide responsibilities on the book, and right. my boyfriend is actually the person who puts the book together because he has a full Adobe Creative Suite, sure. um, and he has like design experience. 
the biggest nightmare to me was for the first issue getting in and we had, you know, we had told everyone we needed standardized files, but uh-huh. spoiler alert, if you tell 20 people that you need a standardized file, you will get at least 15 different files. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so that first <laughs> issue, which was, you know, we had a window we really wanted to hit getting those files in and realizing like, Oh my God, this is hard. <laughs> like This is not as easy as like plug and play because this has to print and look good yeah. in print. Yeah. Um, so that's been a learning process. And my boyfriend is very like no nonsense and will tell it to you straight. So he's just like, Steve, you're a dumbass. Like you need to tell people <laughs> this, this and this next time. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. I like that to me is always the nightmare. I've, I've talked with friends before about like putting together like a one shot anthology and stuff like that. And every time I start to think about it, <laughs> I'm just like, fuck no. Like I have so much stuff to do every day. The last thing I need to do is spend all this time trying to get all of our like pages to look similar. And also like, not to mention making sure that it works, you know, gamut wise, like, right. you know, like all of that stuff where you're just like, I actually want to die thinking about it. Yeah. Um, just, just yesterday, um, an artist who is contributing to the fourth issue asked me a technical question that I'd never even heard of the term before. And I was like, dude, I don't know. It hasn't come up yet. So I think it's going to be fine. <laughs> like we're just going to plow ahead with this one because oh you have exceeded my ability to understand technical terms. <laughs> <laughs> it's man. And it's, you know, I mean like there's, there's a thing too, where I think uh, like for instance, a lot of my friends are, are web comic creators, right? Like they, one of my friends has a long, long running web comic that she's just sort of putting into print for the first time. And I think a thing that you take for granted when you're doing web comics is like that the colors show up. Oh, right? yeah. Like the, that no matter what you put down, it'll show up on the screen. Nope. And there is like a real limit on print colors, you know, <laughs> compared to that. Like it's it's insane how much how many fewer colors you're working with in print. Um, you know, even from just a standpoint of like, you know, that dark blue is just going to look black. Right. Yeah. Like it's, you know, um, and, and so it's, it's funny seeing all this coming back because, uh, you know, like friends getting like their proof copies you know or whatever first and being like oh nothing is showing up what is happening why why are my colors looking so messed up and i for whatever reason i had the fortune of taking like a coloring class and and having experience coloring comics and so i now it seems to be that all of my artist friends reach out to me asking why their (laughs) colors aren't showing up on their comics um yeah that was one of the the first things with that first issue my boyfriend was like so did you get cmyk and rgb files and i was like what <laughs> yeah. What, what do you mean? I've got color and black and white. <laughs> He's like, weird idiot. Color's uh, color. Yeah. But in in fact, we you know we work with a number of um, one of my favorite parts of getting to do the magazine is we get mm-hmm. horror illustrators who have these followings on Instagram and Twitter, mm-hmm. and some of them this is their first print project ever. So right. I've had to walk them through like, okay, well, what you do on the screen is not necessarily going to show up in print. Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. But it's so cool to get to put horror illustrators next to mainstream comics folks, next to indie comic folk, next to prose authors, all in the same right. spot. Totally, totally. And anyone, anyone listening to the show, any artists out there who are like, "Wait a minute, what are the colors? How do I? How do I?" <laughs> uh, if you're working in Photoshop, just uh, make sure that you're working. The the preferred method these days is work RGB, but then using working CMYK on that, and check the proof colors option. Uh, and that will that will take care of everything you want to know. And if you're using a color that shows a little triangle with an exclamation point in it, then it's not going to show up in print. That's your that's your cheat code. I gave it all to you right there. <laughs> um, 
So in the first issue of Razorblades, uh, it was mentioned that you guys were hoping uh, to to get, you know, a year's worth out there, right? Like you were looking at a year long run and hoping you could get there. Um, and then, you know, sort of maybe more after that, but who knows? How's that looking at this point where, you know, we've got three issues out. Mm-hmm. Seemingly, I'm sure the fourth issue is, you know, getting getting close to, to completion. Uh, how How is it looking to you guys uh, for, for going past the first year? Well, yeah, so issue four is nearly complete. Um, issue three is still shipping. That's that's the other thing. It's like printing and shipping your own book takes time. And yeah. then people online are like, I don't understand. I ordered this 38 seconds ago. Where is it? <laughs> uh, be, you know, people have been very understanding. So I shouldn't, I'm yeah. not, not to sound ungrateful, but it takes a long time. So when we get three out the door in quotation marks, that uh-huh. still means weeks of getting three out the door in two people. But right. issue four is nearly done. Parts of issue five are done, which is very exciting to have more lead time on that. And all of five is booked, knock on wood, uh-huh. short of you know catastrophe. So we know the entire first year. You know, we, uh-huh. James and I can sit down and we see where the whole first year is. Beyond that, uh, it's too early to say anything publicly. I think... Sure. What James and I would both be comfortable saying is this won't be the last you see of Razorblades, but it's also, you know, it doesn't take a lot of snooping to know James is very busy. Yeah, he's, <laughs> sure. he's writing quite a few books uh, and he's got more along the way. So I don't know that Razorblades is going to go straight into its next iteration sure. or if we're going to take some time to like figure out what makes the most sense for us. Right, but Razorblades is absolutely something uh, we will return to. Good, good to good to know, and that's that's what they in the biz call a tease, kids. <laughs> uh, also, you know, the format allows us to take a break because you're, yeah. you know, the the continuing stories are going to finish in issue five, sure. and when we come back, if we come back, whatever, we'll mm-hmm. have a whole new set of tales to to freak you out or whatever. Yeah. Uh, from a whole new set of creators. And that's been there the other go. thing is, you know, before I always, I joke that we beyonce the first issue because we, <laughs> we didn't announce anything until it was on sale. Yeah. Yeah. Which was honestly like truly one of my favorite, especially yes. in the pandemic when like everything you see in comics is just like kind of bad news. It was honestly amazing to just like open up Twitter one day and be like, wait, what? Yeah, <laughs> you I, know, like... I wish I could go back and like fully appreciate that because you're right. How often in comics, especially which is based on pre-ordering things months in advance, yeah. do you just find out? Oh, here's 72 pages of people you may know and like. Uh, you can download right now. Yeah. Um, and obviously, we can never replicate that feeling. But before we ever launched the first issue, we had a rough plan for the whole year of who was going to be in it. Right. So. The upside to that is planning. The downside to that is, you know, James and I have become familiar with new creators over the past sure. year. Uh, yeah. Creators have reached out to us who we never thought would want to contribute and really want to. So uh-huh. we we could make issues upon issues full of cool stuff. It's just about the time and the money and opportunity. <laughs> sure, of course. That makes a lot just of those sense. Those little things. <laughs> um, over over the last year, how much of your day-to-day life was spent managing razor blades because i mean with this many creators this many pages obviously it's quarterly but like how much of your you know bandwidth is taken up just working on razor blades you know i try not to quantify (laughs) um but a lot you know i think probably more than people expect because like you said it's even though it's not a massive amount of work to to tap 
talented people and say, hey, please do something cool for us for four pages. Mm -hmm. When you're working with dozens of creators, it's a lot of people to check in on, to to manage, to make sure they get paid on time, to make sure files get delivered on time, all of these things. So there is a lot of day-to-day. And then James is also handling printing and distribution. So it takes up more time than I think folks realize. But again, you know, it's, it's two of us saying we love all these horror creators and we want to see them do cool things. So it's as much for me and James as it is for anyone else. Sure, sure, sure. That makes sense. Um, tell me about Diamond Eyes. <laughs> Diamond Eyes is the serial I'm doing with Peter Kowalski, Brad Simpson, oh. and uh, Hassan Atzmain Elhau. I'm so sorry, Haas. I'm sure I butchered that. Um, but Diamond Eyes... Uh, we teased it in issue three with just yep. a one page uh, spread. Got me curious. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, and then we're going to have two eight page stories in four and five. And one of the things about razor blades is we didn't instruct anyone to go make their from hell. And obviously that's right. a very lofty thing to say anyway, but of course we always told people, if you want to do something in the pages of razor blades as a proof of concept, as like your first go at an idea you want to do someplace else, do it. Like we would love to be the birthplace of a story that you're going to tell in a longer fashion somewhere else. And there are stories in the first couple issues that whether you know it or not, that is what they are. And I, mm-hmm. I've seen some of what's coming and it's really exciting. Diamond eyes, Peter and I do have a longer story to tell, but what you're going to get in Razor Blades 4 and 5 is a self-contained prologue of sorts. Sure, um, sure. So, you know, if things change and we never get to do more, it's a full story. Um, right. But I am hopeful that it is our first step into a larger world that you're going to get to see from us. Interesting. And I did standalone stories in 1 and 2, and part of that was yeah. timing-wise. I had artists that I was excited to work with, and we are putting these issues together. The thing too is, you know, you would think that since James and I created razor blades, we would have the most lead time on doing our stories, but to the, the detriment of the artists we work with, we're often the last ones to be able to get around <laughs> to our stories. Sure, yeah, you're spending we're, so much time managing the other stuff. Right. We're making the book and then it's like, Oh shit, I got to actually do the thing I'm doing. Um, yeah. So it took me to issue three to get everything in place to get diamond eyes going. Um, but I'm very excited. The pages coming in from Peter are great. I, I've always loved Peter's work. He is yeah. so detailed and he has such a sense of scale. Right. Which is, it feels like, you know, not to make a generalization, but it's a very European trait. Like, sure. European comics, you often do see more work into the backgrounds, architecture, yeah. scene setting, a sense of scale, a sense of gravity and weight. Totally. And since this story does involve, uh, a large spider, as you can see from the, yeah. <laughs> the preview image, I really wanted something that where you see it on the page, you're going to get that sense of scale and the sense of place immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, so g- getting Peter on board was just a, a dream. Um, and he's, he's been a blast to work with. That's awesome. Um, I, I, there's a, a couple of razor blades questions I want to come back to later, but um, uh, I also really enjoyed in the first issue, dead means dead, um, which, you know, was a very, uh, like, you know, kind of a, a, not quite shock horror, but a really interesting little, you know, like get in, get kind of terrified, you know, and then leave with a bunch of question marks. Uh, when did you first start developing that story? 
That one came together so quickly. And it's funny in retrospect because, you know, James and I, when we talk about like the, the ethos behind razor blades, it's very much to do something contemporary and scary and not beholden to past horror anthologies. And I don't think dead mean dead is retro by any means, but it it does feel more like the sort of thing you would find in eerie or uh, creepy Uh or any of those anthologies, because it is kind of a short shocker. It's like, uh-huh. here's the, the, you know, the gory twist. Um, and it came about working with Michael. Uh, again, I'm horrible with last names, but Michael. I think it's Dialinus. Dialinus. That That's how I, I, th- I think I heard James say it once in like yeah. an interview or something. And that just like stuck in my head, but I could also be wrong. So you can blame it on me now. <laughs> if it's mispronounced. Hey, it's all your fault. Uh, yeah. And, you know, people should check his work on wind, um, which he and James are doing right now. Um, he really wanted to draw something gory involving body horror and he also wanted to draw something that was not strictly realistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had had some very different ideas that were really like slow and eerie and kind of uncanny. And right. Michael was like, I want to draw something shocking and gory. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I, I will rise to that occasion. Um, so that was a very collaborative effort of me trying to give something to Michael that he was going to find fun to draw. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and I love body horror. I love things like that too. Um, but you know, my boyfriend makes fun of me because he like, whenever I describe my ideas, he's like, okay, so you have like an audience of like four people. I was like, yeah, but those four people are going to think it's cool. Yeah, it's dope. Uh, and it timed out well that, that night train came out around the time of razor blades too. Cause I think night right. train is kind of that like slower, a little yeah. like, under your skin horror. It's like a chilling sort of, horror yeah it's less in your face and dead means dead was a fun chance to do something just very in your face and like which i think was a good fit for issue one to see the range of horror that we're going to have in the anthology yeah totally totally issue one was such an effect and i mean like they've all been very effective issues but i but i found it to be such a um a nice piece of just like really showing off and obviously it's by nature of having so many creators on it but like showing off the range of horror in comics which is oftentimes i feel like an understated genre in the medium um you know like it feels like horror sometimes gets i don't know if it you know like just gets a bad rap or like isn't isn't paid enough attention to or like maybe isn't conducive to the nature of ongoing series and therefore is attempted less or something but um you know it's it's nice to see like a nice range in comics of horror yeah Um, i think without like getting lost in the philosophy of it i think one it's that horror is is not always as suited to the longer series as you say and two it's you know i think we're conditioned to things like jump scares music cues like motion and so translating that to the printed page i think one is just hard and two if you're a reader who's not inclined to suspend your disbelief or to go with what the creator is doing then the barrier to being scared or unnerved in comics is going to be higher than it is in other media. Right. Totally. Totally. And I think a problem, not a problem, like, you know, I'm not one, I shouldn't tell people how to read comics, but like, I do think that a thing that really hurts the experience sometimes is there are a lot of people who read from caption to caption, right? Like read from word balloon to word balloon and don't really take in the images and are kind of speed reading through it. And I think that that's just like, for a medium that is inherently to some degree visual or for a genre that's inherently to some degree visual, both, um, uh, 
then it takes the experience of being scared out of it because so much is reliant on that sort of like visual experience. And if you're not with the story in both ways that it's presenting to you, then it, it's probably just not going to really hit you the same way. Right. Um, but, but you mentioned the night train and I really want to talk about it because that this, this story, for whatever reason, this story just like really got to me. Uh, uh, but tell me where this you know, first comes from in terms of like, did, did TKO reach out to you? Like how, how did it start from your perspective? Oh man. So it, it was one of those funny interconnected stories. And I think that mm. the industry does it. You will get longevity based on talent and professionalism, but you often get mm. opportunities based on knowing people or being in the right place at the right time. Always. Cause the creative world in general is a combination of those things. Yeah. And how it went with night train was, I very, very slightly knew Sebastian Gurner when I was okay. an intern at Marvel. Uh-huh. We, we had not stayed in touch or anything, but we remembered each other. Mm-hmm. And Sebastian works for TKO now. Yeah. Sebastian was also a freelance editor for several years. So when James approached me about doing Department of Truth, I reached out to Sebastian for advice <laughs> on what it's like to work as a freelance editor on an image book. Mm-hmm. Expecting to get like a a one paragraph response, which would have been sufficient. But Sebastian was like, Hey, let's jump on the phone and talk about it. And I was very surprised and it was very nice of him. And we ended Uh up talking for a while and he gave me a lot of excellent advice about the thing I asked him about. But at some point in the conversation, something was mentioned about TKO and I made some sort of joke like, Oh yeah, I'm not trying to like backdoor pitch you or whatever. And Sebastian was like, no, you can if you want to. <laughs> and that was, was what got the ball rolling um, because I had heard through the grapevine that TKO was going to be doing these shorts. Mm-hmm. And I ended up contacting Sebastian and saying, you know, I, I'm doing X, Y, and Z, and I would really like to send some ideas your way if you'd be willing. And he looped in Z, who runs TKO, and we went from there. And I, I sent them a, a whole little set of ideas and we narrowed it down to night train and one other and, and they, they like night train the best. And I'm very glad they did um, because it was such a fun opportunity to tell something, like I said, that's a little more under your skin, a little more um, eerie than in your face and getting Lissandro Esther in on board and Patricio Delpe uh, it was just like a perfect creative team for the the tone I was going for, which was kind of dreamlike, kind of yeah. like, is what you're seeing on the page real? Is it in the protagonist's mind? Um, so it's just a, a perfect, perfect storm. And actually, all of that happened before Razorblades even was a thing. So it was a it was a funny coincidence that I was writing a short horror story, and then by the time it came out, I was editing a short horror anthology. Sure. It's so funny. It seems like, you know, and I, I had Z on the show and I, I did actually interview Sebastian, but um, there was a, a, a chaos with hard drives that led to a lot of interviews from uh, the Comic-Con of that year being completely lost. Oh, no. So at some point we got to get Sebastian back on and, and maybe rehash some things. But um, it seems like in talking to both of them, they gestate their stories for so long. Like they have so much lead time on making sure everything is put together and assembled before putting it out into the world, which is like, you know, almost no one is able to do that in comics, right? Like Skybound and TKO <laughs> seem to be the only two people who are like, yeah, let's get, you know, the entire thing in the can before really, yeah. you know, like that kind of stuff. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really interesting seeing the things that they, they pop out of, you know, like I've had a couple of friends who have also done some of those short stories and it's like, Oh yeah, I, I did that last year. Um, <laughs> you know, like, Oh shit. Uh, 
but tell me, you know, is there, when you're writing this story, is there sort of some kind of root fear, you know, or, or thing that you're relating to that you're kind of writing from with the night train? Like, is there, is there something that you're trying to get at um, mentally without like, you know, having you explain, you know, you're writing or anything, but like, <laughs> no, totally. what are you thinking about writing? Yeah, so Night Train, and if anyone's listening to this and hasn't read it, uh, it, it's a short from TKO that I would love for you to read. But it is about uh, a a 10-year-old boy who uh, he and his family move under a set of railroad tracks in Queens, and they have a new baby who is crying quite a bit. And it's setting the protagonist on edge. It's it's setting the whole family on edge. Mm -hmm. And that story came really from two spots, which was that is a bridge I actually live nearby. And I, I do get a lot of ideas or I do a lot of my thinking while I'm running or walking in the neighborhood. And just that visual of the train tracks going over these brownstones was always very memorable to me. Mm-hmm. And around the same time, um, so I'm 31. I'm also gay. So, you know, my boyfriend and I can't just randomly have a kid and we're, sure. we have no intention of having a kid, but we are getting to that age where some of our friends are starting to have kids okay. and a, two good friends of mine had had their first baby around the time that I came up with the idea of night train. And it was really my approach to the anxiety of having a new child and the responsibility that comes with that. Uh, And I'm telling it from the perspective of a father and also from a brother. And I'm neither of those things. I'm an only child who will never have a human child. Uh Um, But it was seeing that secondhand and kind of thinking out these worst case scenario responsibilities because I, I don't know what is wired wrong about my brain that, like, <laughs> like I don't even like to hold babies. Because when I see a baby, I just think, oh, my God, I could drop that thing. Like, <laughs> like that's my first thought. And uh, sure. I don't know why that's my first thought. But I've always had that kind of inclination to, to see the worst case scenario in things and to, right. to worry about it. And Night Train was my way of trying to filter that into a, is it supernatural? Is it all in the protagonist's head? And working with Sebastian and Z was great because the, the original version of it was much darker, uh, mm-hmm. but was also less vague. And I think sure. Sebastian really helped get it to a place where it was eerie without being like just upsetting. Right, right. Yeah, the vagaries really, uh, I think that's kind of what, and, and it was an interesting lesson in, in sort of some writing things because... I do think the vagaries are one of the big reasons why it sticks with you because then there's all of these like unresolved questions in your head that you sort of, that you keep thinking about later on after you've read it, you know, that you're like just trying to figure out, you know, like how much of this was like, was it a coping mechanism? You know, like, was it a thing he was imagining to sort of mask what was actually happening? Like how, you know, like all of that stuff where you're, where you really are like going down a rabbit hole, which, uh, you know, I always enjoy. I like to be able to think about something a long time <laughs> after I've written it. And I'm not asking you to answer those questions because that'd be insane. And, and uh... No, no. And this thing is there, there is no answer. What you see on the yeah. page is the story. And it's, it's funny because I have had people be like, oh, you know, are you going to tell the rest? And I was like, yo, that is the rest. <laughs> like, this was a short story. And, and I do believe pretty strongly that even in comics, which is a serial medium, you should have stories that have a beginning, middle, and an end, and what you yeah. see is what you get. And if you feel there are unanswered questions, then maybe that's intentional for you to stew on. Right, right. Um, and it, so it's even funnier that my original version did have a more concrete answer, and Sebastian kind of helped me find, you know, my own way back to, oh yeah, I don't, I don't have to do this. It's ten pages. I can leave you asking some questions. 
Right. Of course. Yeah. Short stories are, are best for that. You don't have to explain everything. Right. And I love short fiction. I mean, I read a lot of short fiction and prose, um, but it, it is funny compared to comics where there is this natural inclination to be like, okay, show me what happened before and after explain the right. thing I saw in the background, follow up on it later. And it's like, no, no, no. Right. Some things are just what you get in however many pages you get. And yeah. that's the story. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. Um, now I want to, I want to talk about the cheater code, which, <laughs> uh, or, or rather cheater code, which is, uh, your original graphic novel from Oni press, um, which is, uh, not horror. Uh, <laughs> there's a little bit also of horror. Not young adult fiction. No, I guess it is yeah. definitely not young adult. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me about where this book comes from. And I, I think it's so interesting because it really is like adding kind of a third sort of spoke to the wheel, just the writing wheel, in addition, to obviously, the spoke of, of being an editor. But like, tell me tell me how this project comes about. Yeah, well, like I said, I mean, I, pr- I have books from like beginning to read to 21 plus. <laughs> like, I, yeah. there's a Steve Fox for, for every age range. Um, and again, on the the funny timescale of comics, I actually signed that up in 2016 while I was still full-time at Random House. And, um, Oni has a a pretty patient production process and, um, we gave Daryl Toe, the artist, a lot of, uh, room to work. That came about because my friend Teeny Howard was writing Rick and Morty comics for Oni Press and her editor was Ari Yarwood who was launching Limerence Press, which is Oni's erotica and sex education line. And Ari mentioned to Teeny that they were getting a lot of pitches from people who didn't identify as queer men about queer men, but they weren't getting a lot of pitches from queer men. Yeah. And here's the thing. I mean, I think I am such a proponent of people telling stories. If you have a good story to tell and you can do it respectfully, tell it. I'm not like hard line, you must be X to do X. Uh, And that includes, you know, some of my favorite depictions of of queer men in fiction come from straight men or queer women or whatever. So I don't want it to sound like must be gay to do gay. (laughs) But also, you know. There's an authenticity. And I think that's really what Ari was talking about was she wanted to see pitches that might have that authenticity as well or that lived experience. And so I put together a couple pitches. I had never ever imagined I would write an erotica. It was not on my to-do list. It was not something. And at the time I was nervous because most of my published work was kids work. Sure. And I did have this fear like, okay, if the next thing that comes out is pornographic, are all the publishers, publishers I work with going to say, whoa, 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 we can't, we can't touch you anymore. Right. Is Marvel and DC going to say, strike him off the list forever? You know, like, <laughs> Those were certainly fears I had. So it ended up being a nice thing that it took four years to come out because by the time it came out, I had a lot else going on. Yeah. Last fall, Razorblades, Department of Truth, Night Train, and Cheater Code, all of that was within a month of each other. Wow. And I had signed up Spider-Ham that same month. So it was nice that by the time it came out, I had other things going on and it wasn't like, Oh, this is an erotica writer who wants to do other things. It was like, no, his career is just confusing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I, I always say like the erotic aspect is intrinsic to cheater code, but my approach was if I'm going to do something that people are going to pay $20 to read, it can't just be porn. You can get an infinite amount of porn on your phone, on your computer, <laughs> most of it yeah. free, whatever. Like there has to yeah. be a story here. There has to be characters that you're invested in. 
And that was kind of my guiding light was like, yes, it's a story with explicit sex, but Mm -hmm. my job is to make you care about the characters having the explicit sex. (laughs) Of course. And there's a lot of humor. There's a lot of jokes and video game um, Easter eggs and Mm -hmm. references. So I don't want to slight the erotica aspect, but you could probably take out the actual sex and it would still be mostly itself. The sex is just a fun added bonus. Well, that's, you know, it's interesting because I mean, that is sort of, you know, the way that I think approaching any genre kind of works, right? Where it's like, if you're going to tell a really effective action story, you know, or a really effective mystery or whatever, you you know, like that, even without that specific genre, you know, without the fight scenes or whatever, that you would still care about the characters. Um, and I think it's the same way, right? That, you know, sort of treating treating sex as if it's, you know, action in an action story or, <laughs> you know, anything like that, or aliens in a, in a sci-fi story, like, you know, that you go, oh, okay, like this, this is the thing that sort of like brings in, you know, whatever the tension or excitement or, you know, anything like that. But that at the core of it, it's about like making sure your characters are, are distinct and going through it, you know, relatable or or whatever journey right Um, aliens action sex none of those things are intrinsically interesting you have to put them in scenarios and contexts and around people that make them interesting and as different as tutor code is from a superhero story i really had the same kind of like you know a good superhero story is going to use the action to tell you things about the characters and advance the plot it's not just like okay we take a break we punch each other we go back to what we were talking about. So in this, the sex is, you know, hopefully if I did my job is telling you about the characters and moving the plot ahead in the same way that Superman punching, you know, like Luthor would in a Superman punch. Sure. 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 Uh, how does it feel to be edited? I mean, and I know you, you've, you know, on, on your young readers books and everything like that have been edited a lot, but does it, does it ever feel weird as someone who edits other people to be edited by other people? No, I mean, I, I guess saying this statement invalidates this statement, but I'm very humble. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I have friends who I certainly will not expose, but they, they have great relationships with editors, but privately they're like, Oh, fucking like, how dare they, you know, like they get their notes and they just lose their mind for five minutes uh, before they go and, and do what they have to do. But sure. because I, I worked as an editor for five years and I've never stopped working as an editor since then, I know that an editor's job is to help me tell the best version of my story. Uh-huh. That's not to say that I've never had like a bad experience or something, but I approach it from that productive, like good faith standpoint. Right. And I've also been very lucky that even when I'm working on licensed projects, I've had editors who are still really helping me do my job. It's not like right. I'm going to stand in your way and prevent you from doing what you want to do. Like sure, Spider-Ham, sure. you know, I, Spider-Ham's coming out this fall. I'm so excited. And I was blown away by the freedom I got on that book to do what I found funny and entertaining. Uh, because that was, you know, one of my first experiences working with a Marvel property. Um, right. But the editors were so encouraging and enabling. And yeah, I mean, an editor's job is to help you. If you see, yeah. if you see your editor as like the boss you have to fight to get to the next <laughs> level then you need to take a big step back from, from writing and yeah. about your relationship to the medium. Totally. That, that, yeah. And look, I, you know, I'm, I'm someone who uh, has not had, you know, that much experience working with editors, just, just a little bit of it. And so I can, you know, it's, it's easy for me to say, but like, 
I mean, truly, if you're if you're looking at them not as the person who's trying to help you do your job effectively, uh, then then you're you're gonna have a hard time. Um, now, I, I'm wondering what in in putting out cheater code, you know, the erotica market specifically in comics is, I think, especially in Western comics, uh, kind of you know a very niche, you know, or at least like unspoken about market. What, what did you learn about that segment of the, of the comics market in, in putting this book out? Well, actually, I mean, the quickest thing I learned <clears throat> when, when Oni started sending out advanced copies and, and putting it on um, Idolvice or wherever else uh, is that even though the, the genesis of the project was, oh, I'd like some authenticity in this queer male story, a lot of the readership is not men. If you go to Goodreads, you know, I, very lucky to have a, a great response on there, a huge amount of the audience... It are people who identify as women or non-binary or otherwise not as gay men. So even though I'm a gay man working with a gay man to tell a story about a gay man, the, the readership is varied. Uh-huh. Um, and that was, that was fun. It was exciting. It was nice to know that the story reached beyond people who had similar lived experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also nice to see like folks pick it up who are not gay but they like comics and they like video games and like, yeah, I still get it. Like I can look past the the dicks to, you know, understand your story and care about the character. Um, As far as like broader industry observations, you know, that's beyond my pay grade. (laughs) Like that's for, for Oni sales team to decide like what did or didn't work. But I was, I was very happy with the response, very honored by the response. And Daryl and I have talked about doing another erotica on on our own, unrelated to cheater code. Um, because it, it does seem like there is a, a niche there uh, to be filled. It's hard sure. to talk about Cheetah Code without sounding like you're saying sexual innuendos. Um, <laughs> I wasn't going to say it, but yes. It's, yeah, it's, very, it's impossible. Um, but I do think that, that a lot of that niche is online because you have so many people who are creating um, you know, explicit content and it's on Tumblr, on Twitter, on, on DV, you know, whatever, on these websites. Sure, sure. So I think the novelty is like, oh, this is one I have to buy from a bookstore. That's different. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I think there, there probably is still a code to crack there about how to get the people who consume this content online to want to right. pay $20 for it at a bookstore. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, we had a great response. And the thing that I, I thought was going to be like the most unusual blip in my career ha- has ended up being like a nice, fun uh, component of it. Totally. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, and, and not to get tonal whiplash or anything like that, but uh, uh, in writing, you know, young readers, comics and books and things like that. Um, hard reset. Okay. Hard, hard reset. Uh, I, I think that something that's interesting about that segment of writing is that when done effectively, it is almost a, a real like distillation of what makes stories powerful, right? Like I, I think about... Um, you know, one, like what makes Pixar so effective typically, right, is, is that they are able to to take very human experiences and distill them down to their like most core, simple, relatable essentials and then apply them to sort of, you know, whatever their genre trappings are. Um, I'm curious for you, having written so much, you know, young reader fiction, what kind of lessons have you learned just about storytelling through through doing all that? Even more thematically, I think it's been useful just the economy of writing. A lot of the younger, I don't mean money-wise, I mean like 
the, yeah. the number of words on a page to effectively communicate a story. Because a lot of the younger readers' books, you know, there are there are literal rules. Like there are going to be thirty three characters per line, twelve lines per spread, and it's almost like a, a puzzle solving exercise because you are figuring out how to communicate a story mm-hmm. and also give it some sort of flavor or tone. Like you know, it's not just spot gets ball. You know, like you want to yeah. know like does spot enjoy the ball? Does he hate the ball? Whatever. And, what's standing in the way of him getting the ball. exactly and yeah. when you are working in such a, a restricted format it calls for an entirely different kind of creativity to still do what you need to do mm-hmm. and you know twitter has like got these endless conversations about writers and comics writing too much when is it not enough what you know whatever it's let us all outside so we can stop having the same five conversations <laughs> on twitter <laughs> But, you know, it does help that economy of thinking. Yeah. And so I think that's been the biggest takeaway. And it's also just fun. I mean, you know, I've done like almost 15 Nintendo books, like activity books and and young reader books. And I'm never going to get to write a Mario novel, but I get to work with Mario characters. And, you know, that's a fun bucket list thing to do. I've Uh written Pokemon books. I love Pokemon. Like, yeah. Some, sometimes it's just fun and there's not a much deeper meaning to it. But I think sure. the economy of storytelling is something I have really internalized. Yeah. Yeah. It's that, that's, that's awesome. I, I like only recently started really trying to like dissect uh, young reader fiction and young adult fiction and stuff like that. And like trying to really analyze it and take it seriously. You know, I think that there's a tendency oftentimes to sort of dismiss the kids stuff. And, and I definitely was guilty of it for a long time. Um, and these, these last few months I've been like really enjoying kind of like reading through watching, you know, like all this stuff. And I'm part of it's cause I work in animation now. And so I'm like trying to like, you know, suck in as much as possible. Um, but it's, it's, it's really interesting just how like universal, um, the stories can be. Yeah. And I think like it dovetails with what we were talking about at the, the beginning of the conversation about, you know, in genre fiction, you kind of just want to give readers the bare minimum to go along with you and mm. not ask unnecessary questions. And kids are so pure about that. Like you yeah. can do a story. There's a famous Grant Morrison quote that I'm going to bastardize, but it's like kids don't ask who changes the wheels on the Batmobile. Mm-hmm. And that is in its essence. So true. Like they don't yeah. care. And as you <laughs> become an adult, it's not that kids are, are, are stupider or less refined or whatever. It's just, they understand that if you're telling a story, it's about the Batmobile being cool. It's about yeah. Batman. It's it's not yeah. about picking apart this world. It's not yeah. about, oh my God, the amount of time someone has trended by saying, why doesn't Bruce Wayne solve crime with with his money? That's not what Batman's about. Like that's not yeah. the story. You know, it's not philanthropy guy. <laughs> like it's it's Batman. Yeah. And that is like such the the core of what can be exciting about kids' books is that you can just run with these ideas and you don't have to explain every little detail. Um, And you can tell the the fun, exciting parts of these things and get at the pure big emotions and and get at these pure big concepts. Hell yeah. Um, As we start to wrap up, uh, there's always, you know, one thing people really love hearing about is, you know, the, the sort of process junkies. Uh, They want to hear about the, the tactile parts of, of the process. So, (laughs) You know, tell me specifically what kind of paper you write. You know, but no, you know what? 
what's your outlining process look like, right? Like from sort of a, a high level view, like w- when you're breaking story, what, what tends to be sort of the steps in the ladder for you? Whew. I pretty much have to physically be moving to break a story. Wow. Like a shark. (laughs) (laughs) When I am working on the beginning of a story, I have to be running or taking a walk around my neighborhood, maybe listening to music. Uh But if I'm really getting into it, it can only be electronica. It cannot be words. Sure. And that is where my brain thinks enough to Uh get that first part going. I will almost never just sit down straight to a page printed or digital and start writing an idea. I have to like think it out. The next stage for me is I often like scribble something that I can barely read in a notebook. It's actually (laughs) the worst part of my process because I don't have good handwriting. And then I go back and I'm like, oh, God damn it. Uh, (laughs) To get out these rough ideas. And I didn't used to do that. My boyfriend really recommended it. And then um, Teeny, who I mentioned earlier, We are in a small group chat and Teeny gifted us each with journals, which was a very nice gift. And um, I started using that to write these just crappy stream of consciousness, get it all out on the page, first drafts Mm -hmm. of ideas, not of scripts. That would be interesting. (laughs) And I also, once I I started picking up enough work, once I was doing multiple uh, books at a time, I didn't used to be a huge outline guy. I would write like one, you know, two or three page outline and then I would kind of like do the script as it came. Right. You can't do that when you're working on multiple books. <laughs> yeah. uh, Cheater code was written that way. Like each chapter was figured out on the page at the time. But now I do break down an outline page by page and mm-hmm. I usually try to separate an entire day between that and writing the actual book. Interesting. Because okay. um, it's... it's the most anxiety-inducing part of writing for a lot of writers is that blank Word document. Mm-hmm. And I find that that punctures that so easily for me. You know, I chop the outline into 20 pages or whatever, leave it for a day. And when I come back, I already have a 20-page Word document, and I'm building out from there. Right. So that's, that's my, my process junkie. Do you- I, no, I love it. And, and I'm, I'm sure uh, uh, the people listening out there are taking notes. Um, what... Do, do you have questions? I think that some people, you know, and, and I know it's helpful for me if I'm trying to outline a story or, or trying to break a story initially, I kind of have a few questions that I'll sort of start to ask of like, you know, what is, what's the thing they're trying to get at with their like surface level want, you know, what's the, what's the gap that needs to be filled in their you know personality or whatever, like that, that kind of stuff where it's like, okay, how, how much, you know, does the story have legs? Do you have questions that you're asking yourself or like what is your solution if you're ever stuck in a rut or trying to like answer a, a problem that you're dealing with? One thing I'd like to get better at is that I'm not mm-hmm. a big sharer. Like I have friends okay. who send me stuff in progress and and I am very happy to resp- to give feedback, but it is not often that I do the same thing. I kind yeah. of I like jealously guard whatever it is until it's done <laughs> or like ready it's to a very raw thing i feel like when you're when you're starting to work on it it's almost like exposing a nerve yeah and it's weird because it's not out of shame or embarrassment or self-consciousness it's just kind yeah. of like i need it to be in its pure raw form until right. i can like do what i need to do with it sure but i've been trying to open up so my boyfriend is not a writer but he is a, a voracious media consumer uh-huh. And his tastes are so different from mine. So I have found it very helpful lately to tell him my ideas in these raw forms. 
And then uh-huh. we basically like fight about it because he has these questions where I'm like, but that's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about this. Like I want to talk about this mechanic. And he's like, yeah, but you don't even have this yet. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> and it's, it's infuriating, but it's been so helpful because he sure. does expose the things I hadn't even thought about. Like you're talking about. Right. Um, so yeah, as a writer, I'm trying to get better about that. And working with James has been great because, you know, I send him my razor blades ideas and we talk things out. He's a, right. a, a wealth of knowledge. Um, as far as, quite, you know, it's funny because I work on such a wide range of things. That there mm-hmm. are times where I'm like, I understand everything I need to know about this character. And there are times where I'm like, okay, I need to go run around the block for like 30 minutes <laughs> and really think this over. Yeah, yeah. That's so funny. Um, the running and well, walking as- is by far the most important process of my process. That's so interesting. Maybe I'll have to try that sometime and just see if that's anything that does something for it's me. It's miserable in the winter. I live in New York and I still have to like walk for half an hour yeah. and I'm wearing like five layers and I can't oh. feel my hands, but I'm like thinking about my story. <laughs> yeah, man, I, I'm a desert kid and, you know, I was born in Arizona, grew up in Utah and now live in LA most of the time. But most of this year I've been in New York and let me tell you, it is a weird adjustment <laughs> coming to a place where you have to like suit up to go outside. Uh, I'm I'm still trying to get used to it, and, and man, it's 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 tough. Um, so as as we wrap up here, uh, first let's let's get the plugs out. Tell people, you know, what what can people look forward to? What's where can they find you on the internet? All that stuff. You can find me at stevefox.com, F-O-X-E, mm-hmm. uh, and then at Steve underscore Fox on the the hellbird site twitter um which i'm trying you know i'm trying to use less and less but i still promote sure. promote my own stuff there uh, yeah. coming up so i have spider ham in october uh october november mm-hmm. blanking off the top of my head but i'm very excited about that um razor blades yeah. four comes out in april uh-huh. and that will be the proper start of my serial with peter kowalski brad simpson and haas um, right. razor blades five will be out in july if you haven't been reading the Department of Truth, the first trade paperback is out now, so you can pick that oh, yeah. up and, and catch up. And mm-hmm. I have two big announcements coming up soonish. Um, I know Ooh. one one uh, younger readers project that I co-wrote with Steve Orlando is getting announced at the end of this month, and a Amazing. adult horror thriller we wrote is going to get announced, I think, next month. Got um, it. So those now, now, I mean, I don't know if this changes anything for you. Uh, Steve, but uh, this this episode, you know, may well. Let's see. This episode will probably be coming out right right at the end of the month. So I, I'm not going to make a sign. Just <laughs> well, just what, in case. What I'll say is if you if you search my name on Amazon, list, <laughs> listings go up early, so you might find some surprising things. Interesting, um, interesting that are already out there. But yeah, so I'm pretty excited about those. It's my first work um, with the publisher who's doing both of those, um, and I think those are the most pressing things i have to announce right on uh now before before i ask you the last question uh that i ask every guest on the show um, i do want to know what is the thing that you are most excited for people to uh to read in spider ham we got so i worked with um shadia amin who's a wonderful Uh, artist and we got to debut the animal version of a very popular Marvel superhero who had never had one before. So I'm very excited for folks to see that. Uh Um, And there is a scene involving Croctor Strange, who is the (laughs) crocodile Doctor Strange, um, that 
was a very cool milestone for me to get to write for a couple different reasons. But I, I, I can't spoil why, yeah. um, but it's probably my favorite scene in the book. I love that there's just a segment of the Marvel universe that is like exclusively predicated on puns. Like it's the, it's the funniest thing. It, it did slightly break my brain to, to write uh, six pages <laughs> of, of pun name after pun name after pun name. Um, but I'm glad I got to come up with a few and, of course. and embrace some of the wildest ones. Amazing. Well, Steve, the last question that we ask everyone who comes on the show is why do you love comics? I love comics because I saw Emma Frost turn into diamond and snap someone's neck. And like, I never, never saw anything cooler in my life. Steve, thanks for joining the show. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And thanks once again to Steve for joining the show. You can follow him at Steve underscore Fox. I also want to thank Sean Rosner for the music in the show. You can follow Sean on Instagram at Sean the Rosner. Uh, thanks to Garm for sponsoring the show. And thanks to all of you for listening. I've got some amazing guests lined up. Truly incredible stuff coming from uh, Christine Larson, from Chris Schweitzer and Kyle Starks, uh, from at Matt Emmons, Liana Kangas. So many amazing guests coming up. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited for you all to listen. Uh, but truly... I, I genuinely appreciate everyone who who has been listening, who's been spreading the word. I've loved seeing, you know, those tweets, people saying how much they're enjoying the show and, and you know, the things that people are saying and, and things they're learning from these creators on the show. That makes me so happy, um, you know, especially seeing, you know, aspiring cartoonists out there or even, you know, people who are already making their comics, right? Like, it's really, really cool. Um, I love seeing, you know, people's work and it's awesome just exposing me to more of your stuff out there, right? It's, I, I know that my view of the comics industry is always going to be uh, limited to a degree. So it's really, really cool to be exposed to um, more ends of the, the comics industry uh, and, and the creators out there through the people who are listening to the show and, and spreading the word. So make me aware of you by, uh, you know, helping to make other people aware of the show, I guess is the, the best way to put it. Um, but truly, thank you so much. I, I can't express how much I appreciate all the, the kind words and the love shown for the show. Um, and you know, if you're not following yet, then please feel free to uh, follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at TMBC workshop and me at Jason Halftones on uh, both sites as well. Um, and if you like the show, please, please, please drop a rating and a review on whichever podcast app that you're using. It helps so much to find new listeners. Um, I, again, yeah, it's super, super important to, uh, to me and, you know, like to finding advertisers and whoever for the show, um, to sort of help, help the ship keep moving. Um, cause I, I am at a point right now where my schedule is so busy, um, that, you know, everything, uh, to some degree has to be like fruitful in some way. Otherwise I'm like actually throwing money away to like spend time on stuff. That's not helping that. And again, I absolutely love doing the show. There is almost nothing. I love doing more than making the show. Um, you know, but it's, it's one of those things where being able to bring advertisers onto the show and to sort of help, you know, uh, make the time spent worth it and, and also allow me more time to research, to put things together, to figure out scheduling, all that stuff. It's, it's infinitely helpful. So, uh, those ratings and reviews really help in terms of visibility, in terms of, you know, showing that people are loving the show and that this is somewhere that, you know, advertisers who are, 
who have something that's relevant to what my content is um, are, are able to sort of come and find and see that there are interested people out there. Um, because honestly, I have turned down multiple advertisers at this point because I do not feel that they're, what their product is, is relevant to the show. Um, you know, I'm not going to try and sell like a mattress. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, I, I don't want to like, be on here advertising, you know, like a subscription box for dog chews or whatever. Like I have a dog. I love dogs, but that's just not what this show is about. And so I personally think that, you know, what I want to advertise on the show is stuff that's actually going to help cartoonists, uh, help writers, help artists. Um, and so, you know, the more that people engage and, and review and raid or whatever, and, and let, you know, those sort of people out there know that there is an audience out here who is looking for this kind of thing. Um, you know, the more it helps sort of bring in that income without having to, to go and beg to all of you for, uh, uh, some spare change. Um, so anyway, that's, that's the little spiel. And, uh, I just really appreciate you all listening. Uh, so thanks once again. And, uh, until next time, keep at it. Be cool.com. You never know.